Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. And especially today, we are talking about happiness and we are celebrating happiness. Each year, the United Nations celebrates the International Day of Happiness, and I am pleased to turn over this show for the first time in seven years to my friend and um, fellow happiness researcher, Michelle Geelan, who is a national CBS News anchor turned positive psychology researcher. She's also the best-selling author of Broadcasting Happiness. Michelle is the founder of the Institute for Applied Positive Research and is partnered with Ariana Huffington to study how transformative stories fuel success. She is an executive producer of the Happiness Advantage special on PBS and a featured professor on Oprah's Happiness course. Michelle holds a Master's of Applied Positive Psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, and her research and advice has received attention from the New York Times, Washington Post, Forbes, CNN, Fox, and the Harvard Business Review. Welcome, Michelle Geelan, and I'm turning it over to you because today you're the host and I get to sit in the other chair, (laughs) the hot seat. Oh, this is so fun. I love that the tables are turned. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with you because I think what you said earlier about celebrating, that is it. You're, I mean, you're a published author. You have a book out. I mean, that is, that is something to celebrate uh, tremendously. Um, And it's on such a very important topic, happiness, because, um, you know, it's central to the work I do, central to the work you do. And it really is something that I think should be top of mind and discussed all the time. Um, We see in the research that I do that a positive brain fuels performance. It makes our relationships better. It makes us healthier. It makes us happier. Um, it, uh, it even helps us make more money over the course of our careers. And, you know, we're all heading to that same destination. I'd rather be happy along the way than miserable. Um, so to celebrate your book, we're going to be talking about today. It's called, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. 
and I couldn't think of a better topic. So um, I wanted to ask you to start off. I mean, what motivated you to write this book? I know this is your space. This is what you talk about all the time. But to actually, you know, work on writing a book, which is a huge accomplishment in and of itself. And then on this topic, what drove you to put pen to paper? Well, I think that it is the collection. You know, I've been writing for many years, and uh, as many people know, uh, it's not a secret that I didn't just wander into my happy place, that I'm a uh, reformed, depressed person. And I believe that it is everything that I've written over the years that has been collected made me realize that there is a story to tell here. And in fact, there is a roadmap that people might benefit from from learning to find out how to create a happier space from them or for themselves rather. And so uh, you talk about your journey, right? That And this idea of not walking into the happy place, really working towards it. What did you learn as you went through that journey and how does that now allow you to connect more deeply with the people around you who might be struggling with finding their happiness? Well, I think first and foremost for me, I've realized that happiness is really not that destination, that it's what happens along the way. You know, we find things that we become impassioned by, you know, a goal, a project, perhaps it's just a passion. Maybe it's, you know, something that is a hobby. And we find that the byproduct of the journey is a, a happier state of being. So it's much less about that annoying yellow smiley face that we always talk <laughs> about and much more about that life satisfaction, feeling good about where we are in life. And how do you find in your own life when you're in that joyful space, um, what kind of impact does it have on all aspects of your life? What have you noticed? I notice that when I am in the positive contagion mode, <laughs> You know, when I'm, life is going well and I'm in, a, in, a, in an uplifted place, which really is most of the time, um, that it affects others. It affects that the work, um, the work that I do, the quality of what I'm able to produce is higher. My relationships are more sound and connected. And all in all, I find that life just works better. So this is an interesting time nowadays. A lot of people, uh, given some of you know, political developments are feeling uh, sort of out of control, right? Or uh, very upset or angry or uh, just feeling as if they don't, they're powerless, they can't do anything. Um, how? What kind of advice do you have for people who feel these feelings now? And how can they look at this situation in potentially a different way that allows them in the midst of it, when they might not be able to change exactly what they want to change, to still feel, uh, to still feel happy? Well, I've been calling it post-inaugural stress syndrome, you know, or, <laughs> or, or the acronym pissed off. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think it's, it's prevalent on, on no matter what your political affiliation is or where you're sitting in uh, the political arena, uh, there are certain things that we can control and certain things that we can't. So for me, it goes back to self-mastery. How can I be the president of my own world, you know, I'm, I may not be able to be president of the country, but I certainly can be the CEO of my own life and control what I can. I can learn to um, regulate my emotions. I can learn to work uh, at a more optimal level. And so it's basically, you know, how can I roll up my own sleeves and get involved with making my own life better and, and, and making it better for others as well. And I think this is where we need to get active. You know, that it's not about just what I can take care of in my tiny little corner of the world, but how can I allow my dissatisfaction or my satisfaction to be known by others and be in a like-minded community to make change happen together? 
I love that. And I, I saw this beautiful post uh, by Liz Gilbert. She, she said, you know, I'm not going to post on social media anymore complaints or about the problems unless I have a solution, something that I can do right now or you could potentially do as a result of reading this that might help move the conversation forward or give us back that sense of control. Um, you know, as uh, how has control over the course of your lifetime played a role? How, and are there have there been moments like, for instance, maybe perhaps when you were feeling depressed that you didn't feel as if you had as great levels of, of control as you'd hoped for? Well, I think control is the illusion that uh, fuels us, right? We all like to be in control of our lives. And the reality of it is um, when we do the best that we can and we're willing to relinquish um, a position or expectation of the outcome, we generally feel better about ourselves. So my approach to that loss of a sense of control needed to change. It needed to be much more about showing up doing my best, placing my energy and my focus in the direction where I wanted to find myself, which was ahead of me or, or firmly rooted in, in the present moment and not necessarily on life in the rearview mirror. All right. Wonderful. And so um, let's see. So what was one thing about uh, the book writing process and the experiences that you've had since you finished the book that was surprising to you? Well, the birth-like process of writing a book, <laughs> as you know, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, in nine months, you, you make a baby. And I think it's more like in a year, you make a book. So the gestation pro process, it seems to be a lot longer. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually wrote my book at the same time that I was pregnant and then gave birth to our son. And I swear that <laughs> the the book was harder <laughs> Yeah, the rest of that significantly harder. Um, so, and you work with a lot of clients, um, coaching people, and so how has that informed the information that you included in this book? What What are some lessons that you've learned as you've seen people implement some of the practices that you recommend in their own lives? This is a great question because. Um, in my practice, I work with people who are challenged by addiction, who are challenged by traumatic events in their lives, including crime, the spoils of war, and other you know situations that are very, very difficult. And when I see them applying, you know, some of these very basic applied positive psychology practices, like you know, gratitude, being of service, um, um, taking a different view, you know, reframing challenges as as opportunities, and seeing them take flight and take hold to a better life. It's very, very inspirational. I think that that makes um, the book also very interesting because we have some stories in the book of people who have undergone tremendous challenges and have come out the other side better for having done so. And I think that, you know, is the hallmark of positive, uh, post-traumatic growth rather, PTG. Yeah, which is something we don't often talk about, this idea that there's not just post-traumatic stress disorder and coming back normal from your traumatic experience, but you can actually grow as a result of that trauma. And in fact, I think that is the upside of what depression can teach us, those of us who are able to, you know, work to move to the other side, that I have a, a knowledge of, of myself that I wouldn't have had under ordinary circumstances had I not gone through that. And I think that's the case for, for many people. And in the book, there are also lots of surveys and questionnaires and interactive workbook style exercises 
that really give pause for the reader to take some personal inventory of where they're at in consciousness. And so tell us, what would be the one biggest thing you'd recommend if someone's just starting out on their path to greater levels of happiness? They see they have that control. What's a habit that you would recommend for them to do? I think a very simple and basic habit is to allow yourself a few minutes of joyful activity every day. And that's a challenge for a lot of people, by the way, because we don't think we deserve it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to take that break and say, this is for me and this is what I want to be doing and it can improve my levels of happiness. And then that also has a positive ripple effect on the people around us. Um, All right. Wonderful. Well, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about the fine wine. I'd love to be having a glass of wine with you right now. This is a different wine. (laughs) We are. We're going to have a glass of a different one. (laughs) And uh, and we're going to talk more to uh, explore how you can use the, the science and the strategies in your book to increase your levels of happiness right now. We're going to go to a short break. But before we do, I want to talk with you about my happy feet. Yep, that's right. I am now wearing Bombas, the most comfortable premium socks on the planet. I have become a Bombas sock evangelist. Let me explain why. A few years ago, two cool guys quit their day jobs at a media company to make a difference in the world with socks. They learned that socks are the most requested items at homeless shelters. And at the same time, they realized there was a gap in the market for a more thoughtfully crafted sock. So these guys spent a couple of years on R&D, putting serious thought and intention into every single engineering detail to build a better performing sock. And ta-da, Bombas was born. Not only are they great quality socks, but Bombas is also on a mission to be better in helping to make the world a better place. For each pair of socks purchased, Bombas also donates a pair of socks to those in need. And that translates to more than 2 million pairs of socks given away so far. So if you need new socks, hop on over to bombas.com slash happiness because everyone deserves comfortable feet. Listeners of Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio will get an exclusive 20% discount off your first order, plus a money-back guarantee that Bombas are the best-performing socks in the history of feet. Again, that's bombas.com slash happiness. You can't go wrong and your feet will thank you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. 
Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back. I'm Michelle Giel and I'm your guest host today. I couldn't be more thrilled to be here because we're talking about my favorite subject, happiness, and in particular, Lisa's new book. It's called Are We Happy Yet? The Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. So, Lisa, tell us a little bit about this idea of a fine wine, except not spelled W-I-N-E. You know, at the heart of the research that I do, I look at the ripple effect that we can have on the people around us by the things that we choose to talk about, what we broadcast to other people, and, uh, and we can have a positive effect or we can have a negative effect. Tell me about the fine wine and what that does for the people around you. Well, the the art of the fine wine is really about giving ourselves the space and opportunity to have a good rant once in a while. I mean, life is not always perfect. It's not always easy. Things go wrong. And the idea that we can authentically and truthfully, you know, state what it is, even though we might not be happy, is just as much a part of happiness as the other as you know, as the, as the happy thoughts and the happy actions and the happy intentions. So honoring, you know, where we're at emotionally is really important in in my view. And so what you're saying is it's okay to talk about your problems, to have that good whining session and, uh, and vent to the people around you, but just to do it within the context of, of the bigger picture, which is sort of, I'm not going to be complaining all the time. I really need to, you know, keep this to an isolated amount of time so that I'm not just known as a complainer. Agreed. And I think it can be um, referred to as gassing off, right? Something goes wrong. You have the ability to vent what's going on, but it's bracketed. You know, maybe you allow yourself five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, and the person who is on the other end of it has to be willing to hold space for you. So there has to be some sort of agreement that I'm going to be here for you to listen to this and then we are going to move on. Yes, I love that. And actually that dovetails so nicely with a study that we recently did where we found that it's good to connect with other people about a problem that you're experiencing when you're responding to a stressful event, but you don't want to talk too much to the point where you just get stuck there. You want to actually move the conversation forward and start talking about what you can do about it. Um, and so how, what are some signs that allow you to know when you're complaining too much or maybe on the opposite end when you're bottling it up and then therefore it has a negative effect on your happiness? Great questions. I think the too much arena is when you start to see the person in front of you or at the other end of the, of the phone maybe sighing breathing heavily, maybe, maybe their body, their, their body movements, their body language is a little bit disrupted. Maybe they start crossing their arms or they keep switching their legs when they cross and you feel that you've lost the other person because part of what makes a wine so fabulous when it's good is because we feel we've been heard, seen, mm-hmm. heard, and understood. Um, and then uh, how does one move from that complaining position to doing something about it, or maybe there's nothing to do about it. And we just need to just stop talking. How do we help ourselves move on to, to that new place? Well, and it's, and it's 
best light, we recognize it in ourselves. You know, if we have uh, the emotional and social intelligence, we say, okay, enough, time to pull up our panties and move on. You know, that's in its best light. But oftentimes we don't, we're, we're, we're mired in it. You know, we're caught in the muck uh, uh, of the wine, of the rant. And so sometimes it's helpful, you know, if you're that friend or that person who's at the other end to say, you know, can I ask you a question? And, you know, if you allow space for the question, the question might be something like, how can I, how can I move past this? Or what's next? What could you do about it? What, what's one little simple thing that you could do to move beyond this moment? In your tiny work, steps. yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how it is tiny steps. Uh, in your work, when you're, uh, you know, you're working with your clients or even as you, you know, talk to your friends, how does the, um, the issue of the victimhood come up and show up or are you are you finding that people are more empowered and saying no I can take action here and I can do something I think it's important to recognize that victim consciousness is pervasive in society I mean if you look at every angle of our modern lives where we see it we see it in the media you know we see it in the daily rants on the news and the reality of it is um, if we stop that victim consciousness, and sometimes we need help doing it, we liberate ourselves to make space for something else, which in general could be so much uh, more enlightening, positive, and, and even happy. And But it's hard. I do, I do recognize that it's a challenge because we get stuck. You know, we, we get stuck in the loop. And how, how do you break the loop? So in your book, well, the title of it being, Are We Happy Yet? Um, it denotes a sense of, you know, constantly checking in. And so it, it was that the intention? And tell me about why the title came about that way. Well, it came about when my kids were younger, you know, the, the proverbial, are we there yet, mom? Mom, mom, <laughs> mom, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And so it, it struck me that since happiness is something that is the desire of nearly every human being on the planet, and yet we're afforded every day the opportunity, the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, that that question becomes a really important one. You can have all the stuff in the world and still not be happy, or you could be lacking of all the material um, goods that we hang our happy hat on and still find some level of joy in your daily experience. And so what do you think are some of the key ingredients to happiness in, in the long-term happiness, not the joy we experience from a chocolate bar, although I do think that's very important too. Oh, <laughs> um, cho but, yes. Chocolate yeah. bar, the right heels, a good handbag, you know, all of that <laughs> does bring sort of that fleeting uh, hedonic happiness. That's for sure. But for the long, for the long haul, I think that happiness in my experience and certainly the research supports this, I think comes from the little moments that we're able to stitch together, you know, appreciation for the things that we do have, connection and good social um, relationships, being of service, finding a passion that um, we can get behind for the work that we do, you know, having some, some purpose in the world that is good, not only for ourselves, but those around us, you know, uh, spiritual practice. I think there's a, a lot of research that's been done on that, that people who have some connection to something that's, that's outside of themselves report a higher level of well-being than their non-believing counterparts. And that doesn't necessarily mean God. I mean, it can be knitting or gardening or cooking, you know? Yeah. It, and when we connect to that, those deeper levels of meaning, 
I think that's when we really flourish. And uh, I know a lot of people in their younger years, you know, in their 20s and 30s, they get it from their career. Um, but then maybe as they have a family, they start to see that shift with the relationship or the, you know, the children that they're having. Um, and then as we move into older age, which I'm, I'm not there yet, but for the for people I've talked to, um, it, it can oftentimes shift again. Um, and so what have you seen as far as the, you know, the shift and, uh, and whether people are open to that in and of itself? Well, first of all, I think that shift is really important to to talk about. You know, there was the the U curve study on happiness and aging, and that when we are born, you know, generally, I think because we're in a state of innocence for the most part, happiness levels are fairly high, and then the older that we get. Um, happiness levels begin to dip as we become aware of the challenges that exist on earth and the responsibilities that we are called upon to live up to. And the the U-curve bottoms out, you know, sort of in the child-rearing years at the bottom when um, responsibilities are high, expectations are high, we are working hard to make a living to create stability for the family. And then when the kids leave home and go to college, again, there's an uptick in happiness because people have less responsibility, they're more financially solvent. And I think the kicker is that we care less about what others think. Mm. We're more comfortable in our own skin and occupying our lives. Yes, the sort of, uh, I don't give a darn anymore. (laughs) Yeah, that's putting it very kindly. (laughs) (laughs) We don't don't need beeping out for that. (laughs) No, no, not on on this show. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I I think that you know, as as people get to that point, they see, hey, I'm still here. We are fine. We've been through so many challenges. We've overcome them. And there's that less can touch you at that point if you have the right mindset, because there are some people that get to that point and unfortunately are not in that space. And so what do you recommend as far as how people look back and process challenges that they've been through or experiences they've had over their the course of their year, their, the years? And, you know, what is the past really to us? Is it, it does it inform our our present and our future, or is it something else? Well, I think the past is part of the the thread with which we weave our lives. You know, that it is an important component because it creates texture, but I don't think that the past need predict the future or even the present moment. Just because you had X, Y, or Z happen yesterday doesn't mean that you can't make other choices today. And I think therein lies the challenge with positive psychology because people do think of it as this happyology. It's really something much deeper. And it really is about about choice and education and decision-making every day. And so as people make those decisions and those choices, what would you recommend as, you know, one more thing that someone can do that can really help shift their mindset to see life in a more positive and optimistic way that will then in turn hopefully help fuel their happiness as well? Oh my gosh, there are so many things that come to mind when you ask that question. I think that one simple thing that we could do right now, everybody gets to choose every day is how you're going to go out in the world. What do you go? What do you want from life today? But more importantly, what are you willing to give to life? And and that's that service part of it, you know. Because if everybody's going out there, putting their best foot forward, trying to make a difference and a contribution for themselves and the people around them and their little little nucleus and community, pretty soon you have a changed world. And I find that pretty delightful. Yeah, you serve others, and it only tends to fuel your happiness at the same time. I love it. 
Wonderful. So the book is called Are We Happy Yet? And it's the eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. We've gotten to a couple of them, but I want to know the rest. Um, ah, you have to read the book. <laughs> we, have, we have to read the book, um, which I have gotten the pleasure of doing. And it's fabulous. So um, and, uh, you know, I'm just the guest host here. So I get to toss it back to Lisa to take us out. Oh, and I want to thank you, Michelle Gielen, for being my guest host today, the first time ever in seven years, and it's been an honor. And to learn more about you and your work, please visit michellegeelan.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Michelle Gielen, and on Facebook at Michelle Gielen as well. And the book, once again, is Broadcasting Happiness. And here come those tunes. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Each day, we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times, we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we are celebrating the International Day of Happiness. And my next guest is a key figure in this International Day of Happiness at the United Nations. I have Maher Nasser with me today. He is the Director of the Outreach Division in the United Nations Department of Public Information. Mr. Nasser is a graduate of Birzeit University near Ramallah with a degree in civil engineering. He began his career working with two Jerusalem-based NGOs focusing on development and human rights. Maher has spent the past 29 years working within the UN system from various positions with the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees in the Near East, in Gaza, Jerusalem, Vienna, Amman, and New York and with the UNODC in Vienna. And so I'm delighted to talk with Maher about the International Day of Happiness. Welcome. Thank you, and, and thank you for contacting us and for the interest in, in this very important uh, day on the UN's calendar. Thank you for agreeing to be on the show, because the International Day of Happiness is something that I've been following for the past few years since its inception. And I'd love for you to share with our audience a little bit about the day, that it's not the day of the yellow smiley face. It's something much more deeper and critical to the success of humanity, I believe. It is indeed. I mean, uh, when, when the day was passed based on an initiative by the government of Bhutan and the permanent mission here, because in Bhutan, they have a concept that uh, happiness is a fundamental human goal, and that in the country and the government with the king's direction, basically the government sees it's part, part of the constitution is to work towards people's happiness, and happiness should not only be measured in economic terms. So their argument was that we all look at people, uh, countries, uh, 
Human Development Index and and look at the economic figures and GDP, gross domestic product, and so on and so forth. But happiness and well-being are beyond that and should be looking more at a wider understanding of what makes people content and happy, which reflects again on their well-being and and, and mental health and and so on and so forth. So. That day uh, was uh, presented by the government of Bhutan with the support of other countries and uh, approved by the UN as an International Day of Happiness in 2012. And since then, we have been observing it uh, moving forward uh, with trying to vary on the theme from one year to the next to uh, look around of how we link it to the work of the UN and member states and others to improve uh, conditions of, of life everywhere. And this year's theme is is quite delightful. It's meaningful and delightful because the UN has partnered with Smurfs. That is correct. I mean, um, <laughs> let me go back a little bit. In September 2015, member states unanimously approved uh, 17 goals that we call global goals, sustainable development goals that between the year 2015-2030, member states agreed that to work together, uh, governments with the private sector, civil society, that it's basically also individuals can look and aspire to achieving a future by 2030 in which there is no poverty, zero hunger, uh, education available for all children, uh, better uh, health, uh, gender equality, empowerment of women uh, available, and so on and so forth. There are 17 goals, and I think people can find out about them. It's a simple Google search, sustainable development goals, and you'll find links to uh, what those goals are. The goals were approved as a blueprint for the development, sustainable development moving forward, and of course, action to prevent uh, climate change and so on. Um, so what we have done for the last two years, and this year a specific focus on, on, on the SDGs, is linking happiness. If you talk about happiness as not necessarily just uh, achieving high income, a wider perspective, of course, health, working to end poverty, working to end hunger, and, and mental health, and so on, all of these elements can lead to uh, a wider level of happiness. So last year, to start with, uh, the same partnership we have with Sony was they came to us about uh, Angry Birds, Angry Birds movie coming up, and they said, we'd like to work with you on, on International Day of Happiness and Angry Birds. And the link there was, they are Angry Birds. How can we link that to happiness? And the tagline was, let's say, well, how, what would make an Angry Bird happy? So the campaign was built around Angry Birds Happy Planet is that it's a campaign to raise awareness about the importance of uh, action for climate change uh, to, to basically conserving energy, uh, water, and so on and so forth. And that was a very, very successful campaign and initiative uh, with, in partnership with Sony Entertainment Pictures. And they produced uh, public service PSAs, short PSAs, posters, social media, uh, and it was phenomenal. Uh, we were really impressed with that partnership, and, and I think they were also very pleased with it. It received a couple of awards uh, as a campaign to raise awareness on in relation to the SDGs. So this year, uh, with the upcoming Smurfs movie, they approached us with another uh, suggestion to partner 
on a much wider set of the sustainable development was not just those related to climate and energy. And, and that's what we have been uh, working with. Uh, the website, Small Smurfs, Big Goals, uh, has been up and, and running since 15th of February. And we're looking forward to a major event that we have here uh, at the UN on the 18th of March. It's it's a wonderful campaign, and I wanted to just go back to some of these goals because you you mentioned some of them, but I, I I happen to have the list in front of me, and I'm and I'm taken with many of them that you didn't mention, which mm-hmm. really I think uh, talks to uh, social justice, more uh, equality for all, and strengthen the means of impl- implementing and revitalizing the global partnership for sustainable development. That it really is a col- collaborative effort. No, definitely. I mean, I I would happily go over the 17 goals if time permits, but I yeah, of I course to give a taste of, of of some of the ones that that um, are the people the the ones that most associated with with the wider work. Of course, you cannot achieve an end to poverty and zero hunger without uh, addressing the issue of inequality. You cannot. Uh, work to uh, basically climate action without dealing with sustainable consumption and production and better urban planning and better uh, access to facilities and infrastructure. Peace, justice, and strong institutions are essential to achieve many of the sustainable. So the other thing that is important, other than enumerating the different SDGs, is that they're all interlinked. And this is part yes. of the beauty of the campaign is that we're, we're not saying that we should focus just on ending poverty or just on ending hunger, but to, to actually achieve those, you, you need to ensure that children have access to education. And access to education shouldn't just be about reading and literacy and numeracy, but also about quality of the education and education to build global citizenship where you have the future generation believes that a, global, a good global solution is also in the best interest of the country itself and the nation, that they also see their role as protecting the environment because we, we only have one planet. We don't have plan B or a planet B to fall back onto if our planet climate change renders it uh, less hospitable to not only our, our life as a species but that of other species. Last week on Friday the 3rd of March was the World Wildlife day. Uh, it's another day on the UN's calendar. And it was amazing to know that in the last 40 years, 50% of wildlife on the planet was destroyed. Wow. That's frightening. Very, very yeah. frightening. And But I think what you're what you're speaking of in the SDGs or the Sustainable Development Goals, and and you mentioned um, prior in the discussion about money, and I think we can all agree that money is important. This is on an yeah. individual level, and most of us around the world would like to have a little bit more. Yeah. However, money is not the main predictor of sustainable well-being. It is a contributor to sustainable well-being. It is correct. I mean, uh, money is important and, and gross domestic product is, is always on governments and, and, and I think companies uh, top level, but it's not always the only predictor. I think access to health, access to education, access to, well, actually feeling of equality. I mean, the feelings of justice, that society is being just to the different minority groups and leaving no one behind is another another element that 
it's a, it's a theme throughout the 17 goals, is that the goals and achieving them should not leave anybody behind, whether that, in, uh, that is being a member state, that is a community within a member state, that is a minority group, uh, whether it's uh, religious, racial, gender, uh, otherwise uh, should not be left behind. All of, yeah. all of these elements are important, and I think we as humans, we don't really always appreciate the fact that inside us, we have a yearning for justice. Always people, if you watch a movie, I think the majority of people, maybe, I don't know, I don't know if there are people who, they're always rooting for the good guy. Yep. Yearning, I love that, a yearning for justice. I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more. We're going to go to a break, and when we come back, we will carry on the conversation with Mahar Nasser of the United Nations to learn more about Small Smurfs Big Goals. Please visit smallsmurfsbiggoals.com. You can find Mahar on Twitter at Maher Nasser UN, and you can also tweet at the hashtag smallsmurfsbiggoals. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the International Day of Happiness celebration. Here come the tunes, and we will return. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We're continuing the conversation and celebration of the International Day of Happiness with Maher Nasser of the United Nations. Maher, prior to the break, you, you mentioned something that really touched me about the, a yearning for justice, that at, at a, a human's core, we are always rooting um, for the good guy to prevail. That is true. And, and I think we see this in the work that we do around the world in, in, in the United Nations. I mean, the UN, people sometimes, and media refers to the UN uh, as being in New York. Our headquarters is in New York. Of course, the General Assembly is in New York, where member states come and meet. And no matter how big or small, each country has one vote uh, in the General Assembly. And, and, and that's, that's amazing. Equality of sovereignty of member states. And then you have the Security Council, which has the responsibility for peace and security around the world, which is considered the most powerful body in the UN because it can authorize action to uh, authorize uh, sanctions or even use of force to uh, make peace prevail and authorizes peacekeeping 
operations for the UN itself. We have the Secretary General of the UN, who is our moral and leader and, and sort of like the the executive head of the Secretariat uh, of the organization, and of course, other bodies of the UN. But what is important and people don't often know is that the UN is present in the field, in the countries, and is acting on a daily basis. And, I, and I'll give you some statistics. The UN actually provides food and assistance to 80 million people in 80 countries every year that supplies vaccines to 45% of the world's children, saving 3 million lives a year, assists and protects 65.3 million displaced people that include internally displaced and refugees, uh, works with 195 nations to limit uh, global temperature rising above 2 degrees centigrade because otherwise scientists predict that we, we will have catastrophic consequences. And, and this is some other image that people are always associated with the UN. We have 117,000 peacekeepers in 16 operations around the world and, and, and so many other things that the UN is doing around the world. So the UN is not just in New York where it brings member states together to actually reach agreements such as the Sustainable Development Goals but also such as action to combat climate action uh, but sets sort of a normative set of agreements, regulations, uh, and agreements that become essential for multilateral uh, relations between countries. Um, today, we live in a global village. So we have global problems that no matter how big and strong the country is, it cannot solve them on its own. It needs to cooperate with others. And the UN is that platform. So it's a platform that is available and I think beneficial for every member state. And this is this is something that I think the U.S. took a lead in establishing the United Nations and I think needs to feel proud that the, uh, they are hosting the United Nations, but also that they were key to its creation and establishment. You know, you talk about um, what I hear you talking about is really a, a need for a greater interdependence, that none of us, no matter how big and powerful as a nation, can can operate as an island and the inclusivity factor, you know, how we rely upon one another for knowledge, for resources, um, to, to rally, you know, for a cause is, is immense. And it's necessary in order for the growth and well-being of the entire planet, I believe. Absolutely. I mean, the, when you talk about international crime and organized crime, no Buddy within a single border can deal with it without cooperation with police departments and law enforcement in other countries. You need to do that to deal with organized global crime, whether it's global terrorism, uh, the proliferation of, of weapons of mass destruction. You have to cooperate with others to, to achieve uh, an international capacity to deal with those challenges. Of course, climate change is, is of course, one that people talk about. But even take something as, as diseases whether it is Zika or, or Ebola or SARS uh, or uh, avian flu. And, 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 and now we are talking about the danger of uh, bacteria that is resistant to uh, medicine, um, antibiotics, and so on and so forth. We need that collaboration to, to reach that. Of course, the other element is People are now concerned about refugees and migrants and, and movement of people to other countries. But 
the human history is a history of movement and migration. And many yes. refugees and migrants in those countries have brought immense uh, contributions that have enriched the cultural, scientific, and technological, and life of the communities that they have, they have uh, taken as, as new places of, of, of residence. But also, if we want to limit the movement of people and, and refugees and displacement, we need to work to end conflict in those countries. And when we deal with conflict, it's not just sending peacekeepers, but also in dealing with the root causes of conflict. And dealing with the root causes of conflict by investing in the development of those communities not only prevents the conflict and movement, but also, you know, there's self-interest in that because you're building a middle class in another country that will look and maybe buy some of your products. Um, in terms of uh, uh, to uh, limit movement in countries, if you, if you if people have basic needs, you know the rights to uh, uh, food, shelter, uh, water, good clean water, health care, um, some level of determination and participation in their government and, and their environment, you will have less movement mm -hmm. because people Absolutely. won't feel the need to flee. Absolutely, people. I mean, people who flee. The number one thing they want to do is to actually go back to where yes. they came from. Refugees, yes. and, and I'm, my parents became refugees in 1948, and, and I can tell you, uh, they both passed away in the last four or five years, but their dying long-term aspiration was to go back to their village, to where, from where they had to flee in 1948. And, and the, same, the same thing for refugees now fleeing Syria and fleeing other conflict zones. Uh, the, the, best, the best solution for them is to go back. And the UN High Commission for Refugees, the, uh, the refugee agency for the United Nations, the number one solution that they try to achieve for refugees is to actually to have them go back to their original uh, countries of origin. Uh, but if failing that, then they have to seek either settlement in a third country or in the country where they are uh, taking refuge. And, and these are the, the options that we have. And it's only 1% of the 21 million refugees that are out there today that manages to be resettled in another country. 1%. Wow. I did not realize that that percentage was so low. I, I thought it was greater. But you mentioned something about the desire to, to go back or the desire to go home. But when home, returning to home is not a possibility, you have a, a, a war-ravaged country. Mm -hmm. Um, the the displaced person mentality, I think, that carries on, you know, uh, psychologically with somebody has, is an invisible does. wound. I mean, talking about happiness, you mm -hmm. know, people carry this with them for their lives and, 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 and pass that on to their children. That is that is that is true. Uh, but then they also uh, we, we, humans are very resilient. And I think humanity wouldn't be where it is today if it hasn't been so resilient and people try to find new goals and new aspirations. That will always be in the back, yes, the trauma, wanting to go back. You miss your country, you miss your home, you miss your street, you miss the, you miss the best meal that you had, you miss the graves of your ancestors because you cannot go and see, and see them. But at the same time, with children, you start developing new, what is best for your children? And this is why you see refugees, they might go and stay in a refugee camp for a year or two, and as the time goes by and they see that their children are not receiving the proper education, that they have no future, 
then they will seek to move somewhere else and that's why they will risk their lives and you see all these people trying to make it to Europe and we heard figures from IOM and, and UNHCR about thousands of people who have drowned making that trip in the Mediterranean. It's yes. because what forces you to do that except wanting to do something for your children to get them a better life. And I think it's, it's also a human aspiration is to, to give your children a better future. And this is what, going back to the Sustainable Development Goals, this is what they're about. We're, we're trying to ensure that our children and their children have a planet that is habitable, that, that climate change is in, under control, that they have resources that we are not com- consuming uh, irreplaceably. Uh, and, and I think it all relates to global happiness. And, and it's interesting, I didn't get a chance to mention it before, the government of the United Arab Emirates last year, they created a ministry of happiness. They appointed the, first, the world's first Minister of State for Happiness. Oh, we need to find that person <laughs> and talk with them. Yes, that, that minister is coming to New York, and she will be participating in an, in an event with us on the International Day of Happiness on March 20th. Wow. Fantastic. Well, we, we, we are, we are going to stay connected so we can... Um, talked with this person but going back to um, the goals and the and the and the relationship between the self and the other and the we that you know for many of us particularly in America that it is all about you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and self-determination and one thing that I have learned is that if I want to be okay I want my family to be okay but if my neighbor is not okay then we're really not okay that that must we must we must think um, uh, globally and act locally. And, and then from acting locally, it then is, is a, a positive contagion for others. That, I couldn't agree with you more. That is definitely uh, what we hope that community societies work within each other. I mean, global action starts locally as well. We are out of time. Mahar, will you please come back? And, and carry on this conversation and help help us educate the world of lay people about the importance of, of happiness on a sustainable and global level. I'll be very happy to do so. Just let me know whenever you, you need me, I'll be there. Perfect. To learn more about the International Day of Happiness and what's going on with the Smurfs, please visit smallsmurfsbiggoals.com to reach uh, Maher Nasser, please do so at twi- on Twitter at Maher Nasser UN. And you can even tweet with the hashtag Small Smurfs Big Goals. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen, and my guest host today, Michelle Geelan, who helped me celebrate the birth of Are We Happy Yet? And Maher Nasser of the UN, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. 
keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.